This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the Fall 2017 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Stories Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have with us today Bruce, excuse me, Bruce Haven. Bruce is multifaceted, as are many of the people that we bring up on this stage. Bruce is an artist, he's a strategist, and he's an entrepreneur. He co-founded Lynda.com in 1995, and he served as its chief innovation officer, as well as its chief creative officer, until 2015, at which time LinkedIn purchased the company for $1.5 billion. That's a billion dollars with a B, just like Austin Powers. Only $1.5 billion. His great vision was integral to the company's success and really helped the company become the leader in online learning. We can talk a lot about that journey. He has an extensive background in photography as well as motion graphics. Um, and he's created illustrations for a number of national publications uh, and, and as well as um, companies including Adobe, MSNBC, and E! Entertainment. In addition to all of his entrepreneurial accomplishments, uh, I like to bring onto the Innovator Stories stage people that have given back to their community. It's one thing to work really, really hard and make a, you know, create a lot of wealth for yourself and your coworkers, um, and that's nothing wrong with that. But it's nice when those individuals um, then turn around and, and benefit their community with, with some of their um, time and their, um, and their resources. So Bruce, along with his wife, Linda, have been very generous. They've been active philanthropists in a number of um, initiatives, including UC Santa Barbara's Arshin Lecture Series, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, as well as the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, which is a real gift um, for, for folks here in Santa Barbara. Bruce graduated from the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, and he now has the honor and privilege of serving on their board of trustees. Let's welcome Bruce to our class. Well, Bruce is at a little bit of a disadvantage. I'm going to try to go easy on him. It's about 2 in the morning for him. He's been all over the world. He spoke um, all over the world this summer. He literally just got here, spoke in Beijing and other places. So I'll try not to trip you up too much. 2 in the morning. 2 in the morning for you guys is nothing, I know. Um, so, so, Bruce, I want to talk a little bit about growing up. So I had the pleasure of, of hearing Linda speak a number of times. And I know that the book Summerhill School, some of you might be familiar with Summerhill School, um, she read it as a child. It's not a book intended for children, but she read it as a child, and it greatly influenced her. And she said it kind of carried on through her adulthood. Do you have a similar like, childhood experience, or is there something that influenced you and you felt like it kept on I, going? Yeah, I, I did. I was horrible. I, was, I had all kind of disabilities that I didn't understand, and... I was failing in third grade. I had problems with reading and writing and comprehension and a lot of social abilities. And while the kids played in the playground, I was in the trailer learning mm. speech to mm. say my R's, my right. S's, right. write my letters the right way. Right. Um, and that was really hard because I do really well at everything, but then there are areas where I just like, no matter how hard I worked, I'd, I'd fail. And... Uh, and that was always really frustrating on the educational level. Like it just made me 
really hate yeah. going into school every day. Right. Because I would go there knowing that I can't get through certain things. And that was very frustrating. So that motivated you, I mean, you essentially started an education company, right? You co-founded an education company. So was that part of the impetus for it? You knew how hard it was for you growing up? You know, I, what, what I've learned in time is that there are different ways and styles of learning. Right. And I wouldn't call ourselves an education company. We're a learning company. Learning company. We don't have any units. We don't have any credits. Yep. We didn't have any tests. Um, it's just like, if you want to learn something, learn it for the sake of learning and move on. You don't right. have to, uh, there, there's no... You don't have to prove to anyone else but yourself. Right. So, Which I think is ultimately the highest bar for a lot of people, like trying to prove it to yourself as opposed to memorizing something for a test. I think so. I think so. But um, to me, it was really about I had a hard time getting things through. And I think part of the emphasis of what we are doing is trying to really communicate how to focus down what we are doing to make it... Uh, in a way that's more approachable. And, and uh, there's a time where I looked at a chart I found. I cannot remember the source. And it said, if you read something, you learn this much. Mm. If you read it and see it, you learn this much. If you read it, see it, and do it, you learn this much. Yep. <laughs> if you learn it, see it, read it, do it, and then teach it, you learn this much. Yep. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and I think what we were doing is we were, show, we were letting people listen to it and hear it, but we were asking people on their own to do it. To actually do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then some of those people did get a chance to end up teaching it to coworkers, people at their company. Um, and that's absolutely true. I mean, here, you know, I, I, I'm a professor at UCSB, so I know this to be true. Many things that I did as an operator, as an entrepreneur, when I then had to stand up in the classroom in front of, you know, X number of people, maybe a couple hundred people, I had to really know it. I felt like I really had to know it. I want to waste anybody's time. And uh, it takes that, you know, you put that finer edge. You put that finer edge in your knowledge. But there's, there's a trick to being a teacher. And it's, you kind of learn more than the student. Sometimes I don't think I know more than the students. <laughs> But, but I think when you teach something, you learn more about what you're going about, and you, you right. find people that know it more than you. And right. it's this, this reinforcement thing that comes back. And, uh, I think that's why I enjoy teaching, because I'm always learning. So I don't want to teach the same class over and over and over again, and so I'm always adding new material, partly because and we're going to talk a lot about curiosity. Um, it's a recurring theme in, with, in Bruce's life. But... You know, I'm a curious person. I want to learn more, and I think it's it's a better result for the students if I'm excited about the material and I'm, I'm you know I'm motivated to explain it to them as opposed to I've done this 12 times. It's number 13. Get ready. Here we go. Yeah. I, well, I think you know the the condition of coming into education is really important. So when I was going to school with fear and dread, yep, I wasn't learning. Right. And I think when you come in and you're saying I'm excited. I think you're excited and you're more open to learning. I think when you're at a state of play, mm-hmm. you're at a state of wanting, you're more able to learn. But I think when you feel like it's work, right. it doesn't, you don't learn. Yep. It's kind of weird. I don't understand, but you just, you have to be in the right frame. Yep, I totally agree with that. And you guys made it easy for people to digest that information by the way you evolved over time. You were head of innovation. So we'll talk about some of the, the things you guys did over time. Um, one thing that I find interesting from what Bruce just said at the very beginning is many people that end up on the stage that have done, you know, they've accomplished some incredible things. They had similar issues. 
they weren't the straight A student. They weren't the valedictorian. They weren't, you know, the quarterback and the, and the you know, head of the school or whatever, head of the student body. Some were. <laughs> you know, I've had people up here that have had all those things in their resume, but more often than not, no. And I think, I'm not, this isn't like an academic statement, but I, no research behind it, but I think anecdotally, there is some truth to that, that people that are, that are not in the mainstream, however that's defined, are the ones that end up making a big impact. I don't know if it's because they're not in the mainstream or not, but I've seen that time and time again. Um, I, I think sometimes it's also about exposure and being at the right place at mm-hmm. the right time and, and kind of choosing the right path. I mean, I, I got very lucky. Like Linda will say, it was Summerhill, and she read that when she was young. But, you know, I was the first. My dad was literally a rocket scientist. And mm. He worked for Boeing or Douglas later, then later Boeing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I had access to computers in 1977. Right. And, right. and even a little hint earlier, but in home in 1977, I, they wouldn't let me have video games, so I'd program my own. I'd learn programming in BASIC and, God yep. forbid, COBOL and then and, and, and later Fortran. They don't know what you're talking about, but I do. <laughs> yeah, I wish I learned C++ or something else. But, but these really were like things I did that built yep. the bedrock for going in other directions and understanding computer graphics even when they weren't that great. Right, right. Uh, but, but just understanding these things early, because when they started coming out on the consumer level, it was a lot easier to explain it to consumers what they're getting into. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we all had different paths. I think it's really about taking from your past experience and trying to leverage it in the, in the, in the direction that you think you want to go as an adult. So let's talk about one of the things you did in your past. Um, and I've had students that have done this as well. So you tried to sell knives as a way mm-hmm. of paying for your school. That's a pretty bold thing, walking around, you know, selling knives. What, what happened and what did you learn from that? I completely failed. <laughs> I did not do well. I lasted about two weeks doing it. Uh, um, and I just learned I was a horrible salesperson. I don't have it in me to pressure people right. to sell. I'm not a high-pressure person. Right. I don't you know, push myself on people, and what they wanted out of me is what, not what, who I was. Right. So it's one of those interesting things where you realize like, it's very important to understand what you are not. Absolutely. And, and you know, it was the, one of the hardest things as our company is growing was as we are growing, when you start when you start your own company, you do everything. Yep. You take out the trash. You wash the windows. You go buy office supplies. And if it's just you and your wife or you and five others, yep. it's just there's almost no organizational level at that small size. You're doing everything. As you you have to keep giving your jobs away yes. as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, but but it's understanding how to surround yourself with the people that are really smart, that could help you with your deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's the way you ultimately build the right team is understanding what you're good at and what you're not good at. It's hard for younger people. A lot of people watching this all over the world are, are also younger. It's hard to be super self-aware when you're young, but it try. It's painfully hard. I just thought I was good at everything, but I was <laughs> horrible at many things. I just couldn't do certain, like sales was a good example. I am not the salesperson. But sometimes you have to experience it before you know what you truly are good, or you have yeah. to fail. Yeah. Um, I'm reading, I'm going to throw a, a, give a shout out to Huxley's last book. So Huxley wrote a book called Island. We all know him for Brave New World and Doors of Perception, but he wrote this book called Island, and he talks about, it's, a, it's an allegory for a person's journey. 
He was, he was dying himself at the time. And what he says there is really relevant to what you just said. He says, knowing me means you know not me. So I need to understand what's not me in order to understand who me. It's a little gobbledygook babble, but it makes sense. Like, I can't really know who I am until I know who I'm not. So that's part of his journey. So I think your selling of knives was helping you discover who you are not. Nothing wrong right. with it. Now you know, hey, you know, I need somebody that's really good at selling. But I got exposure. I got to meet other salespeople. I got yep. to see how they do it. Right. I realized I don't belong in that culture. Yep. And even though I had a company, I eventually had that culture. It, it was a little insight to what was to come. Yep. One thing I struggled with is I was learning me and not me, and I'm still learning it, was I didn't always value what other people did well if I didn't do it well. So very immature way to look at life. So I was the salesperson. I was more of the business development person or whatever. And I didn't value, let's say, maybe what some of the um, programmers did or whatever. It wasn't that I devalue them and I looked down on them. Not at all. But I didn't appreciate and respect it like I should have. And it wasn't until I got higher up in my career that I realized this is, it's all important. It's not, it's not just what you're good at that's important. It's all important. Yeah. So again, I, it took me a while to learn that. So if you haven't watched it, Bruce has a great TED Talk. I highly encourage you to, to give it a look. Um, and there's a number of things in there I liked. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference one of them where you took some cliches and you flipped them around a little bit. I'm going to read the cliche. I want you guys to fill in the blank. And then I'm going to ask Bruce to just kind of tell us a little bit about why he um, flipped the cliche around. So the first one is every journey starts with an initial... Shout it out. Step. Bruce says every journey starts with an initial... Direction. So why do you say that? Because you have to know where you're going. So is it you have to understand the general destination before you can get going, right? You don't have to know specifically. I always look at it like the horizon. Like on the horizon, it's over there in a general sense. It's not over there. It's not over there. It's over there. And I'll figure it out as I get closer. But these students, they're going to come out of UCSB... And they're not going to just take steps. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, I want to be this. I don't know what I'm going to do in that, but I'm going to go in that direction. Right. Right. Yes. So know the direction. Great minds think alike. Bruce says, great minds think. Despite. What do average minds do? They think alike. <laughs> so think about that. A lot of entrepreneurs are contrarians. They're not thinking alike. They're looking at how the world thinks, and they're saying, well, that might be right. But what if it's not? So I think not always thinking alike is a good thing if you're, if you're trying to do something different. Uh, and then the last one is the opposite of work is play. Bruce says the opposite of work is boredom. boredom. So you just came off an epic trip. Some of it was work. Some of it was play. You sold your company. It's been about 18 months or so, I guess. Two and a half years. Has it been that long? Yeah, two and a half years. Oh, my gosh. Okay, two and a half years. I think we sold that's, in June or May. That's shocking. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a couple of years, over a couple of years. Have you, have you dealt with boredom? Have you dealt with what am I going to do next? How have you been focusing your time? Well, there's a lot of boredom. I mean, maybe not as much now, but, you know, I didn't have a plan B. Uh, and I didn't think the company was going to sell so fast. I uh, got it. So it, from the initial, like, maybe we'll buy you to we'll buy you is under a month. Wow. And they said they're going to buy us to when it sold was under a month. And uh, the CEO only talked to me for about maybe a half hour. Oh, really? So, and that was all the conversation we had. So things went by very fast. So 
and even up to the last minute, I'm like, I don't think this is going to happen. Yeah. And uh, the next day, it happened, and out the door I went. They didn't want us around. So what? So talk. So first off, I want to share with you guys that maybe not familiar with the process. That's incredible. I sold a company much, 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 much less than that, and it took six months, and that's pretty typical. There's just a lot involved, right? A lot of lawyers and diligence and crazy contracts. So what? So let's let's explore that for a second. You had an incredible exit. You built a very valuable company. Now you find yourself unemployed. You with have money. You have means with a non-compete, which means that you can't run off and start a similar business that might undercut that business. Um, how did you? What was the next few months like? What What did you find yourself doing? You know, the next day I just sat home on the couch and I was kind of dumbfounded. Like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't my goal. It wasn't my end game. I thought there were some bigger right. goals within what I was doing. I thought I could take this much further. So I was just kind of shell shocked, to be honest. And you know, it's 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 a first world problem when you Absolutely. sell and you make something like that, and you're you're thinking. But but to me, I, I had a lot of how do I put. It? A lot of self-worth in what I was able to do yeah. and do there. And to not be able to find... See, I was more happy. I, I'm more of a maker and a creator. So I am more happy when I am doing, when I'm making. When I, and, and, and when I had that taken away from me, I'm like, wow. What, I, I think I just invested so much in that company that when I left it, I didn't know what I had. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a little while for me to kind of find my feet. Okay, we're going to take the student's question in a second, but I'm going to follow up on that. Um, so how did you direct that self-worth then? How, what, what did you start creating that got you back in that? And, I, and I, I'm a writer, I'm, I'm a humble writer, but I get that feeling. Like when you create something you're proud of internally, yeah. you're like, oh, there's a certain thing that triggers in your brain. It's really, really a good feeling. Well, um, repeat the question, I'm sorry. So, so you're, you're sitting there initially shell-shocked, yeah. and then you sort of had that self-realization that, you know, I'm really happy when I'm making, when I'm creating. What did that lead to? You know, it, it led me to kind of doing a little what I'm doing, but I've been doing investment both with UCSB, mm-hmm. Arts and Lectures, and with Arts Center College of Design. I'm starting an online school there no with and for them. Here uh, at UCSB? No. Oh, no, down in Pasadena. Design. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I, I financed all their studios and uh-huh. all their setup, and I, I've been just doing a lot of Little projects here and there. We we right. funded the, the helped help fund the theater, the the Riviera Theater at the old UCSB campus. Yep. And uh, we we set up a, a program, a learning program, with UCSB Arts and Lectures. Excuse me. And uh, I believe that's going well. We're bringing a lot of different people to speak. It mm-hmm. usually includes books sometimes yeah. and, and a lot of community discussion. If you were able to restart your company, what would you have done different? So I'm going to repeat the beginning just because it wasn't. Uh, the question was, if you were able to restart your company now, it's been 30 years almost. What would you do differently? Uh, about 25 years ago um, or more. Um, what would I do differently? You know, the the funny thing is, when we started our company, I didn't know we were starting a company. I just thought I was helping my wife out with this or this or helping certain things happen, and yep. I kind of set some things in motion, some classes, some. You know, we were doing VHS cassettes, and we were doing all these things. They were just building. We didn't really, neither of us had any business degree. We didn't have any larger-term goal. And a lot of it was just out of frustration with our publisher, you know. So, so 
I have to say it's like this cavalcade of accidents that were like very happy <laughs> accidents where our publisher said, no, you can't write a book on Photoshop. There's too many of them out there. And my wife goes, I want to write a book on Photoshop or I want to do a book on, on this web design thing and they won't let me. I know. I, I used to edit video. I used to do special effects. All, we'll, we'll, make our own, we'll make our own VHS cassette. And we did this as a result of them telling us what they didn't want us to do and just a sheer determination to publish. So if I was to do this all over again, I'd probably, now I know better what to do. I'd know what to go after and what not to go after. Um, but I would probably make a much larger system and platform than what I, we have built. Um, that would probably work and connect into many other colleges, universities, companies, and allow like a, uh, more exchange of, of learning. Uh, I would build a, a more audacious model. I think that um, accidental entrepreneur, the way you described it, is more common than not. And most entrepreneurs, if they knew what they were in for, and I know this is true of me, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed in the morning. If somebody said to me, John, you got a five-year journey, you got a seven-year journey, whatever, and here's what's involved between now and the end of it, it's just so daunting. So if you really do need to break it up into these little tasks, activities, goals, milestones, and then you look back and realize how far you've come. So, so for us, our initial direction was learning. We didn't know or acknowledge it when we started. But you know, whether it was books or publishing or teaching, or it was all about learning. Right. And uh, so as VHS cassettes came out, it was learning. When we did DVDs, it was learning. We took that online, it was learning. Books, it was learning. Um, when we ran conferences, it was all about learning. So we threaded that. But in the end, the, the, the scalable platform was the online platform. And for video, we, we started it before YouTube was out. I so, know. So video wasn't really commonplace online. And right. it was painful because people had dial Different up. players. So we, we started yeah. you know, way too early <laughs> uh, to be a massive success early on. And we had a publisher once tell us there's three Fs in publishing. And he says, you can be first. And people are going to buy your book because you're first. Mm -hmm. Because you're the only one. You can be fabulous. And if you're fabulous, you're going to want it because they want the fabulous book. And if you're first and fabulous, you're doing awesome. But you never want to be the third F. Which is? You're screwed. <laughs> it took me a second. Uh, got it. <laughs> so you guys, what, what do you think you were? You weren't the first. Were you fabulous? I think we did. Well, my wife well, you were did. first, kind of. You were. In some categories, yeah. in some aspects, yep. we were definitely first. Um, I think we definitely were fabulous. We really worked hard to build a simple and bite-sized chunk right. learning system uh, that was really about how to get it uh, out. Was it web design? Was that the book that you think it was really the first? That was the first book. So you know how people say she wrote the book? I mean, Linda really did write the book on web design. She really wrote the first book that had any kind of sales and was popular. Well, that's, that's, that's half true. Half true. There are other books on web design, but they're written by programmers. Uh -huh. Now, if you ever looked at a developer and a program, programmer and they tell you about design, they're going to tell you really technical terms about how to get things done. This is about taking something really difficult and technical and put it, wrapping it around easy to understand instructions that people that understood design UX and UI or had more kind of intuitive design could yep. go in there into a technical aspect and function. Yep. 
And that's where a team comes into play, right? You have, you have somebody that has the user aesthetic in mind, somebody that can write the hard code that's you know, going to be the underlying code. You need kind of all of that. Yeah, I mean, UX and UI are just as important as code. If something isn't usable, if it's not approachable, yep. if you can't figure it out, you might drop that for the next product that's more usable. Yeah. It might be great. Even if the technology is better, totally. it's not usable, yep. it's not functional. So UX UI is user interface. It's what does it look like to the casual user, not what's behind the, the screen. There might be a really strong program behind that screen, but if the screen is you know, insurmountable and you can't get through it, then it doesn't matter. Let's take the next student's question. You talked a bit about your past experiences growing up, and I was just wondering if there was a specific moment in your life when you knew entrepreneurship was what you wanted to do. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, even when we were doing... The, the funny thing is, when you're doing entrepreneurial things, you're just, you're just functioning, and you don't think... I, I, see, when we were doing things that were entrepreneurial, we didn't even know we could ask for money. We, we thought we had to earn our way through it. We thought we had to afford everything we did. So we had to make realistic business models to pay the bills. <laughs> so we didn't take any money until after 18 years of being in business. And uh, when we did, I think it was the largest funding in U.S. history in an education company since 1985. Wow. I think that was... I can't remember the number. Is, I think it was 187 or 200 million? Well, 187 million, maybe. And so that, what they did is bootstrap. You guys have heard the term bootstrapping. That's when you just grow internally. You grow from customer revenue. It's a great way to grow. You can control your destiny much more um, directly than if you take an investor money. But, but what we did do that, you know, I, I, I actually, if I did it again, back to the earlier question, I would bootstrap everything I do because... We owned everything. You know, we didn't, if we took money early on, we wouldn't have much company left at the end, or we would have people supervising us and telling us right. what we can and can't do. And I think this is more of a passion play. We were really interested in what we were building. We were really interested in the learning and what we could teach and how we could teach and how we could develop it. It was actually kind of fun. So, um, I, I think the fact that we, we, we took a, a lot of smaller little things to fund us from either consulting work to yep. operating a classroom to you know, w you know, writing these books and all these things. And we didn't realize it was funding a much bigger system and a platform and you know, eventually it would hire six to 700 people. We didn't think or see or foresee that. It just, it's just how it came. We had to meet up with the demand of our customers and that's where we eventually went. So I think in your TED Talk again, it might have been, I know I've heard you say that curiosity is the gateway drug to learning, which yeah. I love. I'm going to steal that. Um, what, do you have any suggestions on how we can help other, maybe either our children or other people in our lives encourage their curiosity? Or, or maybe it's a coworker. Just, that's been sort of your life's, your life's journey. Like how, how can we do that? I think for everybody it's different, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's just like somebody likes chocolate and somebody doesn't. You know, they'd rather have vanilla. Mm -hmm. um, but you gotta, I, I think, you know, back to growing up, I just remember being in grade school and, you know, the fire truck would show up and I'd go home and I'm, I'm gonna be a fireman, you know? I thought, and then, but the next week the police came <laughs> and they had the dogs right. and they had, uh, you know, the bicycle test on the road, you know? Right. And I'm like, 
think it's the police. I want to be a policeman. So, but but it's I think it's about exposure. It's it's about giving people an understanding of what there is out there and what you have to do and what's right. behind it. And uh, you're going to find things are definitely not for you. Right. And again, it's that not me. So we know that curiosity is powerful. How did you guys use curiosity to get back in the early days, to get people to try your books or to try the VHA, VHS tapes or whatever it was. But they didn't know who you were. You know, I, I didn't know who they were either. We, we did a horrible job of tracking our customers. I think it was really driven by the curiosity. Like, I would be on the beta boards with Adobe and Photoshop, and uh -huh. I would just be like, just geeking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh, okay, that's broken, but, but this is pretty amazing. And I'd, right. I'd get in there and I'd see what they could do. I'd go, this would be cool to teach. And I'd, mm. I'd, I'd get curious about what was in there or what was happening. And Linda was that way with web design, like what you could do, with, you know, back then we used tables to position things because yep. there was no CSS. Right. Uh, so, there, <laughs> or we had the blink tag, but which is no longer usable. Um, but, but, you know, we just find these little attributes and little aspects and we'd, we'd find them interesting and fascinating and new things people could do. Yep. And we just drove and like, how do we build this? where people could learn and, and apply this. Well, because you were domain experts, so you knew, you knew the space well enough to say, hey, if this intrigues me, and if I think this is valuable to know, then probably there's an audience for this knowledge. I, 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 th I think that's a good way of putting it. We weren't always domain experts. And we would, well, you became domain experts over we time. We did, but there's a point where there's people better than totally. you. Totally, yep. And, and, and this is the other case of you have to bring them in. There's this saying that we'd always say, um, A's attract A's, yep. but B's attract C's. Yes. Do you know why that is? Because a B doesn't want to be surpassed by anybody. Right. A B player, so they'll bring in people less valuable. And I've seen this in companies, and they get less and less valuable, and it actually could potentially tank a company. Yes. But people who are really smart tend to bring in people that are smarter than themselves. And they're not really afraid of losing their positions because they themselves are smart. But, but, but understanding getting the right smart people in the right places. That's right. And you do that by being self-aware, getting back to what we said earlier. Yeah. Being humble, being self-aware, and knowing that in the end everyone wins if you hire smart people. I loved hiring smart people. It made my job easier. <laughs> Let's take the next student's question. Um, can you personally point to a failure that was a turning point in your career and in your personal life? Uh, there's many. Um, a failure in my career. Um, probably the biggest one was when I sold the company and I didn't have a plan B. Uh, that was just kind of I was shell-shocked. But failure in the company, you know, I, I think the, the toughest thing I had to resolve was, you know, I worked with my spouse. And uh, we would take the work home. And we would discuss it, whether in a happy situation or be at opposed ends of the, the spectrum on the discussion. And, uh, and it may be more stressful. And um, I think that that made life very difficult at times. But uh, I, what I learned from that was I got to really learn to choose my battles of what's important. It started off as everything was important, and it was a lot of headbutting, and um, and even with employees, like it, there's a point where you have to realize, like you have to let it go, you have to give guidance and direction, and you have to give uh, enthusiasm and support, 
but you can't control everything, but you can move the tiller and give the general direction. And I think I was trying to manage everything, and it was just, that was a fatal mistake. That was horrible, because it just made me always frustrated, always tense, and uh, I think that the letting go part, to a certain extent, is very healthy. So I, I wanted to ask you about working with your spouse. My, I love my wife 26 years now or so, and I've known her seven or eight more years than that. So I've known her for almost all my life. Um, but I don't know that we can work together. So you mentioned in that answer there, um, you alluded to some of the issues. But I know that you said there, in speaking about working with Linda, there are invisible lines and we cross them all the time. So is the secret knowing when to cross the line and when to not? How did you guys sort of parse out what you did and... Well, I did a lot of the design stuff. She did a lot of the educational. She did a lot of the public speaking. I hmm. was more man behind the curtain, if you so speak. Yep. I did a lot of more strategic aspects of the business and the business modeling. Um, and I did a lot of the design. But, you know, occasionally things would cross over. I'd do some design, and she'd say, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, I'd work on this thing for two months. And she goes, oh, you've got to scrap that. That's, that's horrible. And I'll go, why? She goes, I just don't like it. And I'm like, okay. So there's, you know, you, I think there's a point where you have to get your egos out of these right, things, and, right. and and you know that, and, and you know sometimes I think I'd get into her business too. Sure. Like, well, I think it'd be easier to learn if we did this, or easier that, you know, and it's not like we were at each other's throats. We were just we we're trying to better what we do, but we just had different ideas yeah. behind where we are going. Right. And and I think because we went home together at the end of the evening, it was difficult. And so you know, did you end up not bringing it home at some point? Did you say, enough, we can't talk about this all night? Well, I remember once there was a conference, and it was doing about 2 to 3% of our revenue. And she focused about 95% mm. of her time on it. Mm. And I said, maybe we should let that go. Whoa. Um, I was in the doghouse for about a year. <laughs> uh, she loved that conference. Right. So I, I realized, like, okay, I, I, should, I should have backed off. But... But um, eventually, she came around and said, you know, maybe I should let it go. But it was her decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's, let me ask you about the logo. So some of you might know the story. I mean, how many people know what the Linda.com logo looks like? You guys have seen it. Um, it's Linda. And if you've ever met Linda, it looks like her. It is her, right? Wasn't there some issue? Didn't you guys have a disagreement? on the, You came up with a logo design. What was her response? And how did you guys resolve that? She hated it. <laughs> she told me I turned her into the C's candy lady. <laughs> and uh, I showed her, I brought her a box of chocolates, and I said, this is Mary C. <laughs> She's elderly. It says C across, like big bling chain around her neck. And, and, uh, and I said, you don't look anything like... And she just was so convinced because it was an oval. I go, no, it's a round. <laughs> anyway, the... She let it go after a while, but she, she told me that it's impossible for anyone to like any resemblance of mm, themselves. True. So, At least uh, it's true for me. But. Yeah. So she resolved it by, she trusted you. She said, you felt strong enough about it, you advocated for it. Well, a lot of people liked it. It worked well. It yep. printed small in the spine mm. of a book. Mm. It printed big. It, uh, you know, we did a booth at some shows, and I'd have maybe like a, a 40 by 80 foot booth. And I'd wow. project it, you know, maybe 25 feet tall on a wall. Right. And it read well. Okay. And, you know, I'd go through the city of San Francisco and I'd position them on bus stops strategically between the hotels and the convention center. 
not only by like four people go, wow, you wallpapered the whole city. Like, no, just four. <laughs> just where you walked. <laughs> just where I walked. Um, but, you know, we do this, and it was just a very recognizable, very iconic mm -hmm. piece. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I believe in having unique silhouettes. I believe in, you know, trying not to do something that looks like something else. Because right. uh, a logo mark is not your brand, but it's a mark, and mm -hmm. it's what the brand impression is put into with people. Right. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an iconic one for sure. The colors, the whole thing. We'll take the next student's question. At what point did you or your wife realize that you had created something that was really going to be successful and was going to leave a larger impact than you originally intended? Um, I think there's this magic number we crossed when we had our subscription service. And when we passed this earning point, I think it was either at 10 or $20 million a year, um, we got a lot of investors just banging on our doors, wanting our time. And we didn't know what to do or how to talk to an investor right. or what does a term sheet look like. And we got some of these term sheets. And you know, at the time, they were valuing us at like you know, $24 million. Or, you know, so they would pay us pennies for what it was worth today. But um, they, they were all interested. In, they, they saw the potential in what we were doing. And when we started realizing, like, wow, there's a lot of people very serious about our company, um, that's when we started realizing, yeah, we're on to something big. And it was growing at, you know, for a while, it was, I think it was growing over 100% year over year over year. So you could just imagine how that compounds. I'm going to go back to working with your wife, working with Linda. Um, and the tech community has been struggling with diversity for a long time, um, and gender, gender diversity, racial diversity. Um, you guys were started in the mid-90s, so 94-ish. I'm just wondering, during that time, did you ever, I know you didn't take a lot of investment money, so maybe the answer is no, not really, but were there ever interactions where it was you and Linda and, and the other people deferred to you because you were a man and sort of, disrespected her or didn't give her her due? Did that happen? And if it did, how did you guys deal with that? I just think they came to us for different roles. I don't know if they, you know, tried to go around one another uh, So, all. I mean, it's good to hear if you didn't have that interaction. I've talked to other female founders and um, female founders that either worked with their spouse or didn't, and there might be three founders in the room, and they tend to look at the man and sort of ask a lot of questions to the man. And the woman's over here going, eh, I kind of started this company. Well, my wife has always been the speaker, the spokesperson. So usually everything funnels So she sort of drew that attention. On the public, yeah, on the public end of the stick, yeah. Okay, that's good. I mean, that's especially good to hear considering you guys started this so long ago when I think it was probably more, uh, more of an issue. Um, so I'm going to go to something else you said in one of the talks I heard. And you don't give a lot of talks, um, as you said, before we started here. Um, so I'm really honored that Bruce um, took the time to come today. But in one of the conversations, you, you said that children have this fluid understanding of reality and fantasy. It's a kind of a continuum, and it's, it's different from an adult. If you ask a, a four-year-old to draw the sun, they're going to take like the red, yellow, and orange, and they're going to kind of scribble and they're going to mix all the colors together, um, and that's, they're going to go, look, I did the sun. They go to first grade, and the teacher says, nope, take a protractor, draw a circle, put little lines like this out, and now everyone in the classroom is drawing the sun the same way. 
If you look at those two renderings, the one the fourth four-year-old did is really more accurate, right? It's just sort of a... It's not more accurate. Well, it's, it's just there's, there's something to it that's actually far more refreshing, you know? I, I love the drawing of kids. Kids, when they draw it, it's me and mommy and brother and sis, and, and there's the shark that we saw, and it's coming after us, right, or a right, bear. Right. But, but, but they, there's a story. And when they start developing their drawings, when they are cognizant, when they're conscious of what they're doing, yep. they're trying to get the nose right. Right, right. The story goes away. Right. They try to get the eye right. Or they're ashamed of what they, they can't get the eye right, so they just don't want to show anyone. And the story goes away. And, and they, they get more obsessed over the technique yep. or the style than the substance. And you know, if you even listen to Picasso, he'll tell you later in life that I'm trying to draw more like a child. Mm. You know, get back to that. Because there's something that wasn't spoken. There's something that was just kind of like, they got that crayon in their hands and they made that fist and they, they drew that thing and yep. it's just kind of primal. But they're able to communicate. And I don't know, I just think like what the kids can do at a young age is rather amazing. And, and you know, for me going back to art school, part of it was like learning to go back and like, I, I gotta tell the story. Mm -hmm. I, gotta, I gotta go back to that part that I gave up. Right. Because, uh, you know, for me, my background is being an illustrator. So, of course, I have to go back and tell the story. Or... Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you. I feel like that you've, kept, you've held on to that um, more so than many people. You've held on to that continuum of fantasy. Fantasy is not the right word, but, you know, this fluid reality um, and through your drawings. Do you feel like you've consciously tried to hold on to that, or is that just your personality? Some of it's just my personality, you know, but... But some of it is, you know, I'm, as I said, I had problems with reading and writing and comprehension. You know, I found out later I had Asperger's. Mm. I didn't know that. I just thought I was stupid. Right. Right? I wasn't stupid at all. I just had some things that made life a little more difficult for me at the time. And um, I, I think for me it's just... Drawing is the one thing I could do that's taken me through my career where even if I'm not illustrating something, I can get an idea out on mm -hmm. a board. Mm -hmm. I can go from head, mm -hmm. and everything in your head is ethereal. And when you fix it to paper, when you right. fix it to the board, you could make something real. Yep. And if you could explain something well, people could execute on that. So here I go. I could now go, and I could say, we need to do this. And I could explain it out. And then they could work with me, and we could modify it. We could, you know, but but to explain it and show it uh, is very powerful. Yep, I agree. And if you if you do get a chance to watch um, Bruce's TED talk, you illustrated pretty much all those slides. Those are all hand illustrates. It's a gift. I mean, I wish I can't draw stick figures. So I really am envious. I, of I illustrated all with Crayola crayons. <laughs> I know but you did. That's actually what made me think about this. This this concept of the child, you know, the childlike nature, because that particular set of drawings did have that feel, like you were drawing it almost from. I mean, they're very good drawings; you can tell what's going on, but they had that younger sort of childlike feel to them, which I thought was was wonderful. Yeah, it worked perfectly. Yeah, so you know, there, a lot of people call that loosening up. You know, you get a little looser. You're, uh, you know, or the drunken master. You know, mm -hmm. you're. 
you're you're not so technically accurate and perfect, but right. you're it it becomes the lines become more playful. Yep. Well, Hemingway would say, "Write drunk, edit sober." I don't know if he really did that, but that's what he used to say. We'll take the next student's question. Uh, yeah. So, as a teacher myself, I'm wondering uh, what practical advice you might have about how to foster that sense of learning when you're in a system that's really focused on tests and grades and educational assessments. What would I have to say? I, well, the thing is, I didn't have to deal with what you're dealing with. I didn't have assessment. I didn't have test. So I wouldn't have anything to offer you there. I just focused on learning. Um, and, you know, the test isn't really about learning. The test is really about proving that the student was able to understand and comprehend what they were learning and, and mirror it back to the, the school or themselves. Um, I really don't know how to answer that, to be honest. Well, let me, let me dovetail with a question about learning. So as we mentioned already, um, Lynn.com started essentially with books and then VHS tapes and then DVDs, CD-ROMs, and eventually online videos. So there was, a, there was definitely an arc there. We have the Khan Academy now. We have Coursera. I just did a wonderful class on the philosophy of um, politics in Coursera, a really fulfilling course um, that I enjoyed immensely. What do you think the next decade holds for education? I mean, this seems like a pretty old model. We've updated it with the filming it, and now it gets distributed worldwide, but the classroom model is a bit old. Where do you see it going in a decade? You know, I, I, I think there's... I think there's a different model out there, but I don't know if it will be adopted or not. But I think, you know, we have, we have systems in America, there are systems in Europe, there are systems in Asia, but I really think uh, we need to look, you know, as far as like America, we need to look at a larger national model to build, to understand, you know, when I got out of high school, computers didn't exist right. as personal computers. Right. When I was in college, they barely started. And, you know, I'm still laying out type with letter sets and rub-ons. I'm not using computers and laser printers because I couldn't afford that then. It just yep. came out. You know? right. so, so people have to retool their skills. And uh, and in all these fields, as technology improves, as new developments come out, you know, what you have to do to be relevant in your career changes. And your college years are only a few years. Yep. But the, the time that you're going to spend working is 20, 30, 40 years right. after that. And you got to think of, I, I think that the government really needs to look at ways that once people are out of school, or maybe it's a program for schools, mm -hmm. where they could have an ongoing aspect where they could learn, they could update, they could sharpen their saw on maybe it could be online, UCSB right. online, right? Mm, right? And you could go and you could see all the new business practices. You could see all the new things of innovators. You could see all the new medical breakthroughs. But you could see how to actually apply them. Not theoretical, but actually application. Yep. And I just think there needs to be that. But then there needs to be something lower, lower than the college, lower than the high school, where, where it's about talking about these careers, mm -hmm. getting, you know, documentaries about people who do fantastic things mm -hmm. and why should they be interested in them or not. Uh, things to help guide them to see what they may or may not want to do. Right. But I think it's more about building this larger arc and it's about lifelong learning. I, well, that's what you built your company around. Um, I, and not in preparation for this talk at all, I was looking for 
um, some slides on a book called Getting to Yes. It's a negotiation book. So it's been around forever. And I found some slides that were from, uh, it's on LinkedIn now, but a Linda.com course. Hmm. And I thought, how appropriate. And there was a number of different, you know, a number of different slides, uh, excuse me, a number of different presentations to choose from. So, and it was all available. Um, so in that, and of course, you, there was ways you could pay for different things, but that was available for free. Um, I just find that that's such a resource for people all over the world um, to get a to get a college level quality education essentially for free or partly for free or part of it's free, and that's clearly going to continue. I don't know the answer to where it's all going to go, but it's certainly going to keep going in that direction. And I do think this this model is is old. It's it's a bit broken. Well, it's broken, but it's not broken. You know, there's parts of this model that are really good. You know, there's parts of a school that work really well as brick and mortar. And online can't replace it. You cannot have a good classroom discourse online. True. Anonymous does not work well online right. in a chat situation. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of funny laws with minors uh, in a chatting situation yes. online. Certain things just can't work online. But you could have a critique, a talk, a discussion. You could have a lot of peer review and understanding of your peers of what work, what don't work, and you could see each other's projects. There are things that you could do in this. You're going to make relationships in the school. Yep. You're not going to make relationships online. Yep. You know? I totally agree. It's that online, offline model where I might say to you guys, hey, go watch these videos or go watch the lecture I gave, and then let's come back as a group and let's talk about yeah. that. So, so a lot of people call that as the flipped classroom. And you know, law and law schools have been doing this forever where people read, mm. and they go back read and the they case. read the yeah. read the case study, and then they go back and they argue it yeah. in the classroom. And that's also a form of a flipped classroom. Yeah. But I think what we did is more akin to a book, right? It's more learning materials. And a lot of colleges and universities adopted these. Mm -hmm. And you would see this and you'd react and you'd go, uh, do the rest in class. And, and you know, for where I was with the Art Center College of Design, we would teach people to edit the videos. And now when they're teaching film, they're not teaching the edit of the software, which was changing every 18 months. Right. They were teaching the cut, the mm, story, mm. Uh, the set, like, like how do I get the craft better? Because yeah. the software is going to keep changing. You know, to learn the software is not a lifelong skill. Right. It's going to be a skill that's going to work for a few years, and you're going to discover it's obsolete, right. it's out of date, or it's been replaced. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. but knowing the fundamentals of the film, of film creation and editing yeah. is important. Yeah, so I think, I think the, the, the big thing here is, like, what's best done online? Mm -hmm. What's best done in a brick-and-mortar school? And where they could work and where they overlap and where right. they don't. And, and together. I think there's, there's some something to be said or something to be found there. Yeah, I think we're still figuring that out. We're in any number one of it, um, of that discovery. We'll take one more student question. Um, what would you say makes your company different and better than your competitors? Ah. Different and better. Um, you know, I think some of our competitors did some things better than us. I'm not saying we are better, but, you know, we got, you know, in poker terms, I think we, what we did is we, a lot of our competitors were acquiring other competitors or other people and other content uh, to make a larger libraries to compete with us. We were building it all, recording it all, editing it all, 
in-house here in Carpinteria, uh, California, in Santa Barbara. Um, we didn't have the best platform at first, but as we could afford it, we did it. Um, but I think we really did, what we did really well is uh, we did really good content, and we did a really good job curating it. We did a really good job understanding the various fields we went into and what to cover. Um, I'm not sure, I haven't looked at what they've been doing the last two and a half years, but you know, the focus to me was always about content and what we were doing. And everything else was derivative of that. So if we were to put our focus, let's just say, in business courses, then our editing needs would follow that. And then everything would follow uh, because it's more about meeting. What we found out is we were meeting a real need. And, and when you meet the need, I mean, we, we had horrible marketing. We tried <laughs> really hard to market ourselves. No matter what we did, the word of mouth was better. We spent a lot of money on marketing, and it rarely helped. Uh, we, we did some things right, some things extremely wrong in marketing. But uh, I figure we really did best with just having really good, usable content for people. And when they found use out of it, they shared it with their friends. The universities picked it up. And every, all the business is really driven out of the programming of the content. And what I found is, is a point of differentiation, because I, as I mentioned, I, did, I was involved in, in a pilot. It was an uncompromising um, goal of quality. I mean, the quality of that production, it wasn't like, well, that's good enough. Let's just, we've got to get somebody else in the studio. Let's get them out of here. It was a, stayed as long as you needed to stay to make it right. And, and I really, I, I was just really blown away by that. Because I'm not sure every, you know, it is a little bit of a volume play, right? You've got to get all these classes started and up and running. So I felt, from my humble vantage point of just that one data point, I felt like I was blown away by the quality and the emphasis on the quality. Yeah. It, it take, take as much time in the studio, John, as you need to get that quality product. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really about how do we make you sound good? Yep. How do you make you sound coherent? Uh, or, cause and I need help. You know, I, would, I recorded a lot of the courses myself early on. And I did a lot of the Photoshop and Illustrator and motion graphics, After Effects courses. Yep. I even did courses on color. Uh, but I'd usually throw away the first hour of all my recordings because <laughs> like, I'd just like, trip over my tongue and I couldn't get it right. And I was just awkward. And then you get, I'd get in a rhythm and, and I'd be able to just go. But I'd have right. to throw away my first hour. Right. But in that set, it's that discipline of throwing away the first hour and not saying, let's just use it. Yeah, but that was me. People made me but look I think like it a fool. I watched, the organization, though. Yeah, but I watched people just step in there and like bang the thing out and walk <laughs> out and leave, and I just go, oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah, well, they can't draw. So, so last question. Um, see if you can leave us with some thoughts on filling the box. So you've said in the, you've said in the past, you are the box. You as an individual are the box. Make sure you're filling that box with the right stuff. Do you have suggestions on how these young people, young people watching this, me, how can we help ourselves make sure we're filling it up with the right stuff? Well, that, that, that's a phrase you're bringing out from a talk I talk about thinking outside out of the, the box. box. Right. And my argument is it's this thing that people say and they're like these magic words, let's think out of the box. Right. And my attitude is you can't. 
You literally can't because you could say crazy things or try to random random and get out there, uh, but uh, you're really filled with your life experiences. The good things, the bad, the learning you have in this classroom, you're stubbing your toe, whatever it is, your your love of cats. uh, These are all these things that make you up. So when you go, if you're a mathematician, so if you go into the world and you have to do something, if you're a mathematician, you can apply your math to that. You know, you might as well bring in a consultant, (laughs) then then that if and and one that goes in the direction you want to go out of the box in, because it's a whole other box in a different direction that could help you. It's, it's really hard. Um, you know, I've been to all these like brainstorming things and I've been to a lot of these and so many of them just don't yield anything that goes anywhere. Right. Or, you know, and, and anyone's happy. Sometimes you feel like you're making plaid and everybody agrees on plaid but nobody likes plaid. Right. You know, so what are you going to do? And, and I hear it a lot. Everybody says we have to think outside the box, and, and maybe that's code for we have to do something different. Yeah, uh, but, but we the, don't know what it is. But we don't know what it is. They need the direction. You right. know, so they it's need, a journey starting with that. Direction. You need the direction, but right. but you need to have the base. You need to have the understanding of what you're dealing with. And you know, I have to tell you, everything that we did, I didn't have that base. I had some of the base, but I didn't have all of it. And it was about bringing in the right people with the other parts of those structures that could support us and hold us up and go. And we couldn't do everything. Per- you went in when we had a really nice recording studio. Yep. When we started, we had a, a crappy door, and we just put a note saying, quiet uh, recording, <laughs> and right. we couldn't afford a recording booth. And we did everything as we could afford it. Sure. And we, as I said, we didn't take any money. So we, as we, we could afford it, we made it better and better and better. But... Um, I think all these things, all these businesses, all these ideas, they're about these little incremental things. And even with software, you think it's all about, it's not a 2.0, a 3.0 release, they're, they're dot releases, or they're little improvements, right. and they're tested, and they're tested, and you fall back, and you go forward, and you go forward. And it's not these monumental growths, or a lot of little growths. Yeah, I think that's true of most startups, and I think it's true of most lives. And, you know, we're inch by inch, it's a cinch, yard by yard, it's hard. Yeah, Those sometimes you need to make a yard, but yeah, uh, and but it feels like to make it by inch by inch. Yeah. yeah, Bruce, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.